Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to episode 36. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, with my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, what's up, buddy? Man, this fighting off a cold this week, Josh. Uh, Wednesday, I started kind of feeling it coming on, and yesterday it was a little bit worse. And then this morning, I got the full-on you know, head compression and, and all that stuff. <laughs> but you know what, Josh? We are here to serve the people, and, uh, and so here I am. Man, all this weather changing, uh, I got um, a few of my kids are going through the same thing. So uh, I'm sure I'm sure some of our listeners are in the in the thrust of it as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just hey, a couple things real quick, Josh. One, um, we will be having a show next week, next Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. And I'm going to try to uh, get that out a little bit sooner than normal, depending on what time we get to record and, and things like that. Um, so if you're in the deer stand or whatnot next week. Or, you know, uh, you're tired of maybe certain family members, you know, be sure you can uh, – Check out hmm. Texas Oil and Gas podcast while you're enjoying your Thanksgiving vacation. Also, if you could leave us a rating and review in iTunes, uh, we would really appreciate that. It helps the show out. And if you are interested in participating in our once a month Q and A session, uh, Ryan at GlobalEnergyMedia.com, shoot me an email. We'd love to hear from you and hear some questions. And uh, depending on the feedback and what the interest is there, we might do a once a month. Um, Q&A session. But before we go any further, let's thank our sponsor, which is, again, FreshBooks. They are the number one cloud accounting solution designed exclusively for small business owners who bill for their time. If you go to globalenergymedia.com slash accounting, you can join the over 10 million businesses worldwide who use FreshBooks to make paperwork a breeze. Start your free 30-day trial by going to globalenergymedia.com slash accounting. Well, Ryan, we're going to start things off with a, uh, an article from mysanantonio.com, and it's about uh, something called natural gas flaring. Uh, for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with it, it's basically a form of controlled burning. So when uh, natural natural gas uh, methane starts to be released, um, sometimes what they'll do is they'll burn it instead of letting that what they call venting going straight into the into the atmosphere. This article goes through some of the I guess the protocols and averages of certain companies in the Permian and elsewhere um, that talk about um, some of the companies have a higher percentage of gas being released through flaring than others. Um, now, Ryan, these numbers are pretty marginal. Uh, they're not they're not huge numbers, but what they're what they're hitting on is that some companies are investing pretty heavily in trying to reduce some of these flares uh, to try to reduce the emissions that are going into the air. But I think what they're what they're really trying to do, based on what I'm looking at, Ryan, is is that they're trying to figure out a way to increase guidelines uh, to put on some of these companies to force them to spend more money. Um, what, what were some takeaways you saw in the article? Yeah, I think you're you're right there, Josh. The first thing was is the article leads off by saying that uh, Permian Basin producers were burning between three and four percent of their natural gas, and so I thought, oh well, okay, that's more than I thought it was, but okay. But if you read down just you know four or five sentences later, it's actually the two paragraphs is the way the article is structured. Um, the largest permanent producer, I'm sorry, let me read uh, a different spot. Overall, less than one percent of gas produced in Texas is flared or vented, according to the Railroad Commission. Okay, so let's just and it says it also says that uh, that the data the Railroad Commission collects doesn't distinguish between flaring or venting. So you have less than one percent of all the state is either flaring or venting now. 
less than that 1% could be 99% venting or 99% flaring. There's no way to really know. Now, we know it's not you know that probably 99% of the way, but we don't really know because the Railroad Commission doesn't distinguish it. But if, So we got 3 to 4% being flared off or uh, vented off in the Permian, but that's less than 1% of all the natural gas in the state of Texas um, that, that's being produced. So it's very, very small percentage compared to what we are doing. Now, the other thing is, and the article talks about this, but it kind of minimizes it. The reason that companies are doing this is because natural gas prices are low, and there's not really a need to sell natural gas to the market like there was a handful of years ago. I was talking to someone at one point, uh, two or three years ago, and he was blown away that people were flaring off natural gas, not from an environmental standpoint, but just because at one, one time natural gas prices were so high that the fact that you would flare it off was unfathomable. But now we're at a point where, you know what, that's what we got to do. I think the takeaway for me, Josh, on this article is, one, that even though we're in a low-priced natural gas environment, companies are still only flaring off across the state less than 1%. That means they're doing a spectacular job of getting natural gas to market. So if you want to come in and say, hey, guess what, we're going we're gonna to increase guidelines and we're going to make it more burdensome, all that does is drive, is, is, as we talked about before, it, it falsely drives up the price. It falsely causes more things um, you know, for these companies to be more expensive to do what they have to do, and there's not a market demand for this. They are doing an outstanding job, in my opinion, less than 1% across the state. I'm going to keep saying that. Less than 1% across the state uh, is flared or vented. So if that's the case, in my opinion, I don't know what else you, you can ask for them. That is an, an incredible amount of efficiency. Even if you talk about 3 to 4% for permanent producers, well, most permanent producers weren't going there to get gas. They're going there to get oil. So I think, it's I, to me, it's a kudos to the industry Great job, and if you're if you're not happy with this, then you I don't know what you're gonna be happy with. Right, and, and that's that's kind of my takeaway. Just reading through, um, I mean, it, like like you said, they're not there to get gas, and yet they're still operating at that level of efficiency. Uh, that that is a, a testament to to the industry, and uh, I I think what they're what they're really shooting to do is just to overregulate, you know, just to to add add regulations on it so that they can drive up the cost and just make natural gas even more expensive uh it's, it's only one thing that i can see yeah and, and you know it, it goes back to this you know if you look at three to four percent and you may go oh that's kind of high i don't think it's that high to be honest with you again if you look at um with the permian producers talk about three to four percent for permian producers they're there for oil eagle for producers barnett producers they're going to be a different boat you know there's gonna be a mix some of their uh, barnett's gonna be for gas obviously but eagle for producers some will be for oil some will be for uh, a mix some will be for more dry gas uh, but still, across the state, less than one percent. So even if so, really, what these people were saying in this article, this report—it's not the article, I should say—it's the, it's the, the report they're referencing is—is is that it's really the permian producers, three to four percent permian producers. Because if you take that away, uh, there's really nothing across the state. Because if any other play, Josh, think about this—if any other play was high, was 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 higher than one percent. Well, then these state averages would be higher than 1%. That mm-hmm. just tells you that everywhere else, it's, it's basically nothing. It's just the Permian producers, and they produce a lot of this flaring. But still, it's only 3 to 4% of them. So for me, it's kind of a non-issue. It's like, okay, you know what? Uh, we had to find something to get on oil and gas for today, and here it is. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, you know, I, I pulled up a, a little piece of information uh, just to figure out why would these uh, companies in the Permian be flaring more. And, and what, what, they sh- what they showed um, was possibly – that when pipes and equipment, when they start to gather too much pressure, sometimes they'll flare it just as a safety device. Um, so there's possibilities that there's several other things at work uh, with some of these, you know, big, big dr- uh, drilling wells in the Permian that 
may be getting a lot of oil and it may have to have some kind of release valve because there's so much gas that they're uh, that they're capturing as well. Moving on to uh, the next article, Texas frack sand boom puts truckers in high demand. We had uh, Sergio Chapa on a little while back, and he talked about frack sands and how uh, there were some big plays. I believe, was it around the Houston area, Ryan, that he said that there were several, uh, or was it around Dallas? What was that? What was the area that he said there was like four or five frack sand companies? That I were, think it was uh, down there by him, Josh, right outside of San Antonio. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. It was San Antonio, and he, he talked about – um, this, these frack sands and some of the, the potential. Uh, well, this article touches on uh, a big uh, Texas frack sand boom that's taking place that Sergio's already kind of given us a heads up about. But they're showing here that truckers are in high demand. They're saying that there's not nearly enough truckers to uh, transport this, uh, this these frack sands for these companies. Yeah, and I, I think your know, last article we just talked about was artificially increasing the price, okay? Here is a way that the price is increased by demand, and here's what I mean. First off, you have to have truckers to get the fraction out there. No shocker there. You have to have trucks. You have to have all this stuff. You know, one, one of the things, one of the themes, Josh, we talked about multiple times is, is that when you look at oil and gas, it impacts so many industries. And here's a prime example, the trucking industry, the fraction industry. Okay, so what's going to happen is, as these truckers, uh, these trucking companies, rather, they become more in demand, they're going to call up a company and say, you know what, uh, Josh Shelton's going to pay me you know, 50% more or 25% more or, or whatever more for my truck drivers to drill, deliver his frack sand first or sooner or maybe exclusively. Well, as this becomes a problem, and if you take what this, this guy says here, <laughs> if you release all the convicts in Texas prisons, you wouldn't have enough drivers. So if, if that's true, if you say, okay, well, he's not full, it's not 100% hyperbole, but it's really, you know, that's how many drivers we need, um, then trucking companies will raise their prices. As they raise their prices, well, what does that mean? It becomes more expensive to drill a well. And so that will, in, that will impact the price, obviously, because people say, okay, you know what? It, you know, it, you know, we used to could drill a well for you know nine million dollars. Well, now it's going to cost us more because of the, the, these frack sand prices. Um, so this will actually affect how companies do business, where the profit margins are, and this is the type of thing that I'm not opposed to, Josh, because this is real market demand. You are seeing these people say, you know what, our demand is going up. Therefore, our, our value as a company, our ability to pay our workers, our price that we charge, all of this stuff will go up. Now, will it hold? Obviously, no one knows. So this is, these are things when you look at it, you know, the last article we said, hey, you know what, we're not in favor of that because they're trying to government regulate. They're trying to fix the market. Here, though, is a prime example of the market working. This will impact the market. And as, there, as the demand for frack sands increase and truck drivers increase, that's better paying jobs for truck drivers. The owners of frack sand uh, mines will be able to make more money. And producers will have to figure out a way how to either um, how to recoup this money. How are they going to make this money back? Because all of a sudden, what they used to pay for frack sand is going to go up. And it could, you know, if you look at what he's saying here, you could be looking at you know a double or triple in price. Yeah, and that would be uh, that would definitely you know bring its own challenges, but also at the same time, it'll bring its own rewards. You know, these trucking companies uh, that are that are in the area, they're probably going to start to pro- proliferate, and you're going to have. Um, you know, more success on that end. Now, he mentions here, though, that due to the low prices up to this point, that they've been pulling from random mines. So instead of trying to get the geographically closest mine and get a trucker to go from point A to point B and make that the shortest route possible, they've just been getting whatever's available. And so he talks about um, at the end of it, you'll have more efficient use of routes um, as you pull from the nearest mine. So I think they may start to work in a more efficient manner. Yeah, they're, they're obviously, you know, you're going to want to be more efficient 
um, because the gas company, the oil companies, come back to you and say, okay, you know what? If you're going to increase your, your 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 trucking prices, well, guess what? We need it sooner. We need it faster. We need it high, you know uh, higher quality. Whatever the case may be, they're going to look at the at the uh, vendor and say, okay, uh, because it works both ways. If you as a as a vendor wants to raise your prices, well, guess what? The other vendor might not raise his prices in hopes of getting more market share. And this is just part of the market environment, and, that, and that's great. That's what we want to see. We want to see companies do well. It's good for everyone, and it makes the oil company try to figure out how do they navigate these waters because they have to make sure that they're making profits on their wells. Um, and so, you know, we, we talk about the profit, the uh, the market being influenced. These are things that influence them, but they're actually good things. They're things that you have to see because if the demand for oil goes up, the price of oil goes up. If the demand for uh, you know truckers, uh, frack sand truckers go up, well then their their wages should go up as well. And so this is a good thing, and uh, it's also a good sign for the market too that you know that this is a problem. Um, if it's not a problem, then you know prices usually aren't going to be going up; they're going to be going down. Well, Ryan, I think uh, this was a great article on the frack sands. We have another article uh, that is intriguing. There's this uh, a series they're doing called Untapped: The New West Texas. Uh, they've released uh, a series of articles, stories about uh, West Texas and some of the developments that have been taking place. Um, what they, th- what the big story here um, is they go back to 2016 where Apache made a major discovery of an area that we now call Alpine, Alpine High. And it's, they estimated that it had 3 billion barrels of oil. Uh, and they uh, started doing some drilling there, and you know the rest is history. Uh, but they're going back and showing how these things have developed over the last few years, and how the Permian has gotten, uh, you know, to the to the place where it's at. Uh, just looking through the article, Ryan, was there anything that that you saw that particularly stood out? Well, I think we talked about Apache last week or week before. We talked about them several times. You know, they're 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 one of these blue chip companies uh, that I like to call them, and. Um, for me, there's a couple things. One, if you kind of look at the process of what they've been doing to get to this point, is they've been, according to this article at least, they kind of played it, you know, strategically and smartly. They've had to. Also, we talked about this, Josh, is that there's kind of a lag in how things work in the oil and gas industry. So if a producer goes out today and starts drilling for oil, he's going to want a pipeline, you know, in theory, to be built to tie into his well or wells. And so Apache, what they've done is, is they've, they've kind of uh, either they've worked it out internally or it's worked out externally to, to their benefit. But regardless, is there's, there's pipelines that are now going through this area that they weren't, that there weren't when they built, when they bought this acreage in 2016. Okay. And so now uh, they kind of got the cart before the horse at some level, right? Because now they can go in an area they have acreage and there's pipelines that are already ready to tie into them and they can tie in those wells, I guess, from day one. I'm not 100% sure, but that's kind of how it reads is they can tie them in it immediately. The other thing is, if you look at this, you know, they're trying to be smart about how they get into this area because the, you know, there are some environmental concerns. There's other concerns. But for, for me, this is kind of one of these articles when you sit back and you read it, it goes, okay. This is a, a great move here. It's a nice metho- uh, methodical move, well thought out, and it looks like all the stars are aligning for Apache to really make a lot of profit off of this new play. Yeah, you know, uh, looking at it, I think sometimes we overlook how these pipelines have been in the process for years now that have been uh, creating this opportunity, you know, that Ap- Apache is capitalizing on this opportunity, but a lot of these pipelines are really what laid the groundwork to make something like this possible. Um, you know, just going going back, we we tend to to lose sight of the the process that it took to get us here, uh, but it it is a big process, and I think you see some of these same companies that are trying to, I guess, get the same thing started with Mexico and get some of these pipelines transporting energy across uh, borders to maybe like you like you mentioned providing energy to California. So some of these plays that they're doing, 
they're not short-term plays. They take 10, 15 years sometimes to really get everything up and operational. No, that's a good point you make there, Josh, is that they could have bought the acreage and saw that these pipelines, these big pipeline projects were coming through and said, okay, you know what, um, our leases aren't up for X amount of years, and so by the time the Comanche Trail and the Trans-Pecos Pipelines are built, then we can start looking to drill. So it may have been something like you, like you said, just kind of sit back, watching the permitting process, and uh, and in, like I said, in Minigo, internally they were kind of playing this along those lines, or it could have been that they were trying to figure out how they're going to strike these commercial deals, and then they look up one day, and these pipelines are being built, and it works out well for them. Regardless, it looks like it's a good play, and it's just good. It's it's, it's another good sign for 2018 for the oil and gas uh, market, especially here in Texas, that things are looking positive. Well, Ryan, we have uh, an article that talks about big data, and big data is something that is discussed in all all sorts of arenas, sports. Um, you, know, you got Amazon, Netflix that utilize big data, Facebook, obviously. Um, you know, in in the oil and gas industry, data is a is a big deal. I know there are companies that pay millions and millions of dollars for data. Um, so this article came out and it talked talked uh, about the oil and gas industry needing more big data. Uh, it kind of it kind of shocked me because I thought that it was an industry that really utilized that data. Um, but what what they go on to say in in this article at Oil and Gas Investor is that uh, it's not necessarily more data that they need. Is they need to learn how to uh, bring this data together and learn how to leverage it so that they can use it more efficiently and have a more efficient use of their wells and uh, kind of putting it all together, uh, taking the data and, and and using it for increased profits or increased drilling or um, I know you've been uh, to several conferences lately. Uh, is there been any talk of big data, you know, um, you know, around the industry? Yeah, you know, Mark Core spends a lot of time talking about this on his show, and for me, I think I think the thing is, you know, w- when we have a problem in our office, and you know, it's something that I have to resolve. My what I feel like my job is is to go in and ask a bunch of questions. Now, these are questions that sometimes people have asked. Uh, each other internally, you know, three, four times from four or five different angles. But it's my job to kind of run through, ask a question, did we do this? What about 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 this? Uh, and working through that process, we find the, the either the, the solution or what the problem is, depending on what we're trying to do. I think with big data, what we have to see is is that the oil and gas companies, they're going to have to start asking those questions. Now, I'm not in those meetings internally, so I don't know how they're trying to use this. But Part of the thing, Josh, when you think about this, you know, and, and go back to my problem-solving uh, solution, one of the things that it does is eventually I ask a question that either hasn't been asked or sometimes, you know, you hear a question two or three times that makes you think of something that you didn't think of before. You go, oh, well, well, no, the answer to that's no, but I, now I think about this. Um, I, I think that when we look at big data, as they mentioned, there's tons of information that oil and gas companies have. Part of it they're going to want to do is they're going to say, okay, this is what we know we need. Okay, well, great. You know you need that. Then you need to start asking questions that maybe you haven't asked before, or maybe that um, you don't think are relevant, or or maybe that you know that you you get you get an outsider almost to come in and just kind of ask random questions because that's how the, the thinking process works. And so I I think that one of the one of the issues that you're going to see anytime you're looking at this data is sometimes we're afraid of what it's going to reveal, and also sometimes we think we already know what it's going to reveal. And so um, again, I'm not inside these oil and gas companies involved in these discussions, but if it was me and and someone called me up and said, hey, we want you to head up a uh, big data team. Now, I'm not a big data scientist either, but they said, we want you to kind of walk us through this process. For me, that would be kind of a, a simple starting point is, okay, what, 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 what you know, raw data do we have? What data do we have? And then I'd start asking kind of weird questions almost, you know. Um, 
you know, is there a certain day of the week we get better drilling percentages or, or, or whatever? I don't know. You just start asking these questions because the more questions they ask, the more solutions you get. And then all of a sudden you can start to, to see data in a, in a different way than you did before. I kind of get the feel from this article and from other people in the industry that it's kind of what I said a minute ago. It's we know what we we know we know we have all this data. We know we need big data, but on some level we already know what we we already think we know what we need to know. And so therefore we're not utilizing it fully. I don't know if that makes sense, Josh, but uh that's kind of how I see it. And eventually that will shift because what's gonna happen is someone's gonna come out with a big discovery and everyone's gonna go, oh, okay, guess what? Now we've got to figure out a new way to do this. Yeah, somebody's gonna somebody's gonna see you know these unrelated topics that have nothing to do with each other apparently, and and they're gonna see some sort of relationship that's gonna create a bigger profit margin um, that's gonna lead to a breakthrough. You know, for example, I, so yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Uh, I think I think that's exactly what it is, and it, it's something that you can't. It's not a it's not a, a linear process. Learning how to combine this big data in ways that. Um, you know, it's, it's not straightforward. Sometimes it's, it's things that you don't necessarily see as, uh, as related that ends up being, the, you know, bringing these huge breakthroughs. Right. And, and so, let me just have an example, Josh, to what you're talking about. If it was me, just, just, just spitballing here. Um, and they brought, and then they were said, Hey, what, what's one thing to start with? Well, let's start with safety. And so let's say, look at all the accidents we've had on our well sites over the last, however far back the data goes. And then let's start asking questions like, you know, how many hours was the crew, that crew on? How many days out of the last month, the last week, the last year? You know, because big, for big data, to process this information is not a problem. So start to build all of the information around the crew, uh, the age of the crew. You know, again, how, how much rest do we think they've had? You know, all, all this, we don't know rest, obviously, but compared to, you know, um, the, when the last shift was compared to what it was now. Uh, when was the last rotation schedule? And then you go to the equipment, you know. What kind of equipment did we use? How old was that equipment? When was the last time that equipment was serviced? And, and I imagine what you're going to find on some level, Josh, is obviously you can't prevent accidents every time forever. That's just not possible. But you might find something that goes, you know what? If we have equipment that is over three months, it's more susceptible to breakdown. And if we have crew members who have worked, you know, uh, X amount of hours over the past week, that is the highest probability we have of, of, of an accident happening. Now, for now, now, you may go, well, that, that, that kind of sounds silly, but, but these are the types of things that they find. And you go, well, I don't know why that is what it is, but let's, let's not do that anymore. Let's not have equipment over you know, so many months, and let's make sure that our employees don't work this many types of uh, shifts in a row. Or, or you, know, you, you can see, kind of see where I'm going here. Uh, the combinations, as you allude to, uh, sometimes they're kind of weird, and we don't understand why those are the solutions. But you can begin to tweak that kind of stuff, and then you can go, okay, well, we, we, we fixed the equipment side, we fixed the workflow side, and uh, guess what? We don't have those types of accidents anymore. Exactly. Exactly. I think that, I think that's exactly where that, that part of the industry, you know, this big data, it needs to go. People need to start thinking outside the box and asking those questions. Well, Ryan, uh, we have a Texans for Natural Gas article where a court, um, I believe it's Sierra Club, was seeking to overturn an approval of export terminals. Uh, there was three. One of them was in Texas. And the Sierra Club, they attempted to have it overturned. It was rejected. Uh, the court said that the department had done everything that it needed to do to maintain approval and therefore Sierra Club didn't get, you know, the overturning that it wanted. Um, Ryan, do we see people like this that are trying to overturn these approved terminals like in Texas and, and Louisiana and Delaware, um, you know, uh, in the Delaware Basin? I, I just wonder why people are so adamant to try to stop or, or, or get in the way or create obstacles for some of these companies to get to work. 
Yeah, you do, Josh. The Sierra Club, they're probably one of the worst. And, and it's so frustrating because, for me at least, it kind of almost makes them, uh, it delegitimizes them, if you will. Um, because you, if you see the Sierra Club, Club is attached to a, a lawsuit, I look at it and go, okay, well, I'm not going to waste my time with that because they're always against everything. I, I'll give you an example. Um, Bernie Sanders yesterday on Twitter, uh, the 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 um, oh gosh, the Dakota not the Dakota Access, but the Keystone Pipeline, you know, they were, had a, had a had a spill, a leak, and uh, and he tweeted out something, you know, really really just ignorant. Like it's you know, it just shows. Uh, and I don't think he actually believes this, but I think he's rallying his base. But he tweeted out uh, something to the effect of. Uh, while we do not need more evidence to show us that pipelines are dangerous and must be stopped, more keep coming. It's like, well, well, of course they keep coming, Bernie. They're the safest way to transport oil and gas. I mean, like, that's the epitome of stupid. Now, Bernie Sanders knows this. He fully knows that it's the safest method. He doesn't care. And so he's just going to tweet this out, and people who don't know this, they go, all right, let's stop pipelines. Same thing with the Sierra Club. They just are against it to be against it. They don't care. And so that's what's so frustrating to me is that there could be times, and we've talked about this on the show before, Josh, that as oil and gas professionals, we want to be responsible. We want to make sure that we are trying to figure out how do we take care of the environment? How do we handle this? How do we look at this stuff? But the problem is a group like the Sierra Club, they just paint with such a broad, a broad brush that it's like, you know what, I can't ever take you guys seriously because you're against everything. It doesn't matter. It's like Bernie Sanders saying we, we keep building more pipelines. Well, duh, Bernie. That's like the stupidest thing you could have said. What's, what other option is there? You know, if we quit building pipelines, Josh, this is real simple math. If we quit building pipelines, we will run out of oil and we will run out of gas. You know why? Because once you burn a little oil or you burn a little gas, it's gone. It doesn't come back. It's, 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 that's it. So you take a drop of oil, you put it through the refinery, she's gone. And it goes off to do whatever it's going to do. And then once that's used at the end level, it's gone. So we have to have pipelines to, to connect to these new wells like we talked about. We have to have LNG terminals to export this product or it just sits in the ground. And guess what? People in China and India and South Korea and Argentina that need need this resource when they use the LNG that they have now, guess what? That's gone too. So you look at these things, and I, and I know I'm probably kind of railing these folks a little hard, and it just gets so old because we cannot have discussion in this country because of stuff like this. It doesn't matter what you want to do. You're either, you're either a climate denier or you're a crazy liberal, liberal leftist, and it's like if we would quit saying stupid stuff, like Sanders said yesterday, you know, maybe we could begin to have discussions. Or if we would quit suing every time, Every time oil and gas wants to do anything, maybe we can have discussions, but we can't. We can't because the Sierra Club, Bernie Sanders, and folks like that, you know, they, they don't care. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this out there, and I'll, I've, I've said it on this show and other shows. If you are someone who is genuinely concerned about the environment, guess what? We're all on the same page. The problem that we see, that I see at least, I don't want to speak for anyone else, the problem I see is, is that people who are genuinely concerned about the environment, they look at the Sierra Club, or they look at Bernie Sanders, and they go, oh, wow, that's deep and profound. It's because they haven't ever been um, educated, informed, enlightened. I don't know, whatever term, you, whatever term you want to use there. I'm not trying to be derogatory. They haven't ever looked at the other side of the issue and ever sat back and gone, you know what? If we turned off oil and gas today, we're going to be out of power here pretty soon because you know what? Your renewables, it ain't cutting it. And so uh, until renewables get to where they can cut it, we got to have oil and gas. We got to have nuclear. We have coal. We got to have something to carry the baseload of this country. And so I know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of rambling here. I'm a little bit passionate, but it gets it just gets so old, Josh, because we lose the ability to have discussions because of groups like the Sierra Club and because of imbeciles like Bernie Sanders. Yeah, you know, Ryan, um, it, it, this 
reminds me of an interview you did with uh, author of the moral case for fossil fuels. And, and during that during the interview, we talked a little bit off off the record. And you had mentioned that a lot of people, you know, they talk about oil and gas and energy and what we're doing to the environment. But they fail to realize is that, uh, you know, the environment kills people every year uh, in terms of cold, heat. Um, we need protection from the environment. I mean, there's a sense in which we need, you know, uh, this energy in order to survive. And I think a lot of people overlook that, um, that they don't see, they don't see the dangers that, that exist and, and the way energy is something that we've learned how to use and leverage, uh, for our safety and for, uh, for our betterment. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think, uh, I think we want to protect the environment as much as we can, but we also have to protect ourselves from the environment and we have to, uh, maintain uh, a certain level of health that, that requires us to, you know, take necessary measures. And I think, you know, if we are going to come up with better usable energy and renewables, uh, we're going to need oil and gas to create those facilities to power our homes and, and all of that until we make those discoveries. So, um, I just think people, like you said, they, they never looked at the other side of the aisle. They never looked at, uh, the fact that, you know, Tesla cars and, and, and these other, other cars are being charged by, some form of yeah, uh, they're not being charged uh, by solar, right? Exactly, right. You yeah, know, so you, it, you get a battery power car, it's just not being charged by solar, right? And and so they're not considering the fact. Uh, they're not looking at the facts really. They're they're only looking at one side, and they're not considering the alternative or what that leads to. They don't realize that the Wi-Fi that they're typing on right. using on internet is being run by oil and gas in some form or fashion. Right. Um, yeah, and, and and you know, Josh, you make a great point there. The, the, a couple things: one, being protected from the environment. You, we don't think about that. If and, and here's a simple way to think about it: um, go pick, go live in Phoenix, Arizona, outside in the blazing sun uh, during the summertime. We, that, that sounds ludicrous to, to think that. Come here in Texas and live outside <laughs> in the summertime. It's ludicrous. Yeah. We need shelter. We need cover. Well, cover in Phoenix probably isn't what you want. You probably want a little bit of cold, cold air blowing on you. Okay, because yeah. it's going to be a hundred and you know fifty or whatever, hundred and twenty. I don't know whatever it gets to out in Phoenix. It's going to be ridiculously hot. And dry heat or not, it's hot. And same thing here in Texas. So we have to have things that protect us from the environment. Unless you live in San Diego, you know, where it's perfect, then you actually have to have things that protect you from the environment. And so, yes, you're, you're exactly right there. And one of the and this this is what gets lost in that part of the debate, Josh. The reason we use energy and the reason we develop these energy sources is because the people who came before us they realize that. They lived outside in the winter up in nor- up in uh, you know northeastern United States. They lived in Europe when it was freezing cold, and they didn't have heaters. They didn't have all the stuff we had. So the people, you, know, you go back 100, 200, 300 years ago, they understood this principle very well because they lived you know with nature, if you will, a lot more closely than we do um, because we have our ability to heat and cool our houses as we wish. You know, it's kind of an afterthought for us. For us... To get out and to go to nature is to gotta test yourself. Why is that? Because we know it's tough. It's hard, you know. Yeah. Because it's that's yeah. not as easy as sitting they see. There's a reason people just don't live outside in tents all the time. It sucks. <laughs> I mean, it just <laughs> sucks. If you and it, if you ha, if you don't have that option, you're gonna live in a house. And so that's what's so frustrating, as you point out that, and then as you point out with the Wi-Fi, you know that Wi-Fi. The, the plastic on that on that Wi-Fi uh, extender router, whatever you call it, you know, that's come from an oil. That's oil-based plastic probably. And, you know, the power is probably off of some kind of natural gas power unit or a coal unit or a nuclear unit uh, power plant. So all this stuff, you know, so when you look at this, 
if we stop building pipelines, if we stop getting natural gas out of the ground today, I don't know what the projections are, how long it would last. It wouldn't last long. And guess what? It's it, we're, we're sitting outside in the cold of winter without natural gas or without without oil or without coal or nuclear or any of these other any of these other sources that make up the base load for our uh, energy grid. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Ryan, we have an article from Seeking Alpha. Um, Contango Oil and Gas has totally disappointed Wall Street. Uh, this company has been uh, drilling for some time, and uh, what, they're, what they're showing is that it hasn't been yielding near as much as it needed to. I, I believe I have a note here. Uh, wells that cost $9 million uh, to, to drill, to create and build, that they not even return a third third of their cost over five months, uh, which they said is, is not good. And they're comparing Contango with uh, Chesapeake, and, uh, and they're saying that you know, Chesapeake's having just a huge year. They're doing having great numbers from different areas, and, uh, and they're complaining that Contango is maybe not aware of the numbers because they have a huge acreage um, where Chesapeake is drilling, and, and there just seems to be just keep going, going with the flow even though the numbers are terrible. Yeah, and just to, I hate to pile on Chesapeake here, but if someone's saying Chesapeake's doing better than you, then that's you know that's that's not a good thing because Chesapeake has struggled over the years. Good for them for turning around, maybe, but but that's just generally not a good comparison. Um, you know, I think the biggest takeaway here, Josh, is from this article, and we'll link to it in the show notes so the listeners can go read it for themselves. Is this is this is one of the themes we talk about on the show from time to time is that not all companies are created equal. Not all plays are created equal. You can't just talk about this magical break-even price and it, and it works. Here's a great example. Contego and Chesapeake are in the same area and one isn't doing very well and the other one is doing well, according to this, this article at least. Well, why is that? Well, obviously the people at Chesapeake are smarter, more efficient, better, got better technology, whatever the case is, they're doing something that Contego isn't. So as we go forward, we, we've, we've talked about some of these deals we looked at in the past, and we say, well, I'm not sure if it's a good deal, or wow, how could this company not buy, how could this company not produce, uh, make money if they, if they expect the break-even price to be $27 a barrel? You, you, you remember those conversations, you know? This is a prime mm-hmm. example of things we talked about on the show many, many times, and I would encourage the listeners to go to go check this out because this is a great example of you know two companies that have some similar type assets, and one can make money and one can't. And when we get excited about oil and gas, too many times we kind of we kind of talk about the market as this uh, you know this this um, this term that's just kind of nebulous almost. Well, here's real examples of where some people can win in the market and some people can lose in the market. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like you said, we'll link this in the show notes. And, uh, you know, it, it, interesting, uh, if, if you do go and read it, to pay attention to um, the the fact that Contango has 7,900 acres in Dimit and Zavala, uh, and and they're not getting near the results that are being achieved by, by Chesapeake. So uh, it's a pretty long article. Just uh, those, That's kind of the, the high note. Look for that. And uh, some interesting stuff in there. Uh, Ryan... We have uh, two two things we wanted to, to hit with. Sergio has a drilling permit roundup. Uh, Endeavor has a you know a pretty big pretty big week this week. They filed I think it was a hundred and one drilling permits. Is that right? Yeah, I think so, Josh. Yeah, so uh, Endeavor's making a pretty big play um, uh, around this time. So it's, it's something to keep an eye on to see kind of what uh, what that's going to lead to. And, uh, and, and lastly, we have a $10 billion plant in San Patricio County. Um, they, uh, they're building a, a monstrous, uh, it's the world's largest ethane cracker. More than 600 people are going to be hired on the, they're scheduled to start building in 2019. 
expected to finish around 2021. Uh, so, you know, here's, here's your jobs call. Uh, the company's getting started. I'm sure that they're going to start uh, getting leases and, uh, and getting some people on, on the payroll to start this building process here in the next six months or so, I would imagine, if they don't already have them scheduled already. So uh, for those people in, around San Patricio area, you know, here's an opportunity. You can maybe check with them, see if there's any, um, any opportunities coming available. Yeah, and, and you know, here's the thing, Josh. As you mentioned, first, uh, you know, we'll, we'll link to Sergio's article. If you're in the services business, here you go. Endeavor Energy Resources, 101 permits, great number for this time of the year. And then, and then the second thing is, is these 600 jobs this, this cracker plan is going to produce? It says are anywhere from a high school diploma to executive level. So if you're in this area, you know, start fall. You know, if you're looking for a long-term job, this could be it. Um, apart from the construction aspect, which is starting soon. So you know, if you're into the dirt business or the rock business or whatever surveying business, whatever it might be, engineering, there might be some opportunity here in the short term when it's constructed. But also long-term, 600 jobs in that area, uh, from high school diploma on the way up. Now is the time to start kind of networking, as you mentioned, to kind of work through this process. 2021, I think you said, is the completion date. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 2021, so you got a little bit of time, but guess what? You go, I don't know anything about, about ethane crackers. Well, here's your chance. You, here's got, a couple, chance, you yeah. got You got a couple years to learn about them. You might go work on the construction end, for, uh, doing something just to kind of learn how they're built and uh, take some classes at night. So anyways, yeah, great article, Josh, and a good find there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, Ryan, I didn't pull up uh, drilling info. We had an issue with their... Uh, uh, their website last week. Uh, do yeah. we have a chance to check, yeah, take a look? Yeah, they did. They they re- the, I reached uh, out to them. I reached out to them, Josh, and uh, I think on Monday or Tuesday they got back to me and said they got it fixed. And uh, right now the U.S. rig count, according to Drilling Info, is one thousand and seventeen, which is up one percent from last week. And so uh, we didn't have the numbers last week, obviously, but it is up one percent to whatever whatever the numbers were last week. Um, and so according to last week, it looks like it was, um, let me give me one second here, the 10th. 1% would have been. It was a, it was 1,012 last week. So okay, up uh, 1% over the week. But yeah, thanks to those folks for getting it out, um, uh, getting it fixed and back up to us because uh, as we mentioned before, Becker Hughes, unfortunately doesn't release their numbers until after where we're done. We are done recording on a Friday. Um, Josh, unless we got anything else, let's go ahead and thank our sponsor and get out of here. Okay. Uh, well, today's sponsor, again, is FreshBooks, which is the number one cloud accounting solution. Be sure to go to globalenergybeanie.com slash accounting, and you can get your 30-day free trial. And then until next time, keep climbing. Mm-hmm.